0: Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Welcome back to another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. Really looking forward to sharing this episode with you here today. It actually... Uh, really relates to me personally, and it's very timely for me. I've spent the last six months, especially kind of reevaluating my own food choices. Uh, I realized after educating myself a little bit that I was way overdoing it on the sugars and carbs, which most uh, Americans and, and people who consume the Western diet are, in my opinion, just way overdoing the the sugars, the grains, the carbs in our diet. Um, and it kind of have le- has led me to this thoughtful approach to what I'm eating daily. And, and I've, I've noticed, some great results, not not just in uh, like weight loss and fitness, but but really in productivity and being able to focus and, and do uh, better work, more efficient work and more focused uh, work for a longer period of time. So anyway, uh, I'm not here to talk about my experience because I'm not a doctor. I know zero about health. All I know is what has worked for me. But I do have here today um, a doctor of animal nutrition in Peter Ballersted. Uh, Dr. Ballersted studied animal nutrition, uh, especially especially forage nutrition, ruminant nutrition, um, in Kentucky and then actually left agriculture. He was in the tech world for many years and some health problems, which he's going to talk about, led him back to agriculture as he realized that a fantastic source for health and for improvements in, in diets can be found through leveraging animal agriculture more specifically ruminants it's what he calls his ruminant revolution so really interesting stuff here about uh the obvious which many of you probably know that hey ruminants can eat food that humans cannot eat and turn it into delicious very palatable very healthy uh nutrition in the form of meat and dairy and other such products so uh very interesting discussion here i think you're really going to enjoy it because even if you're not a forage ecologist or ruminant nutrition or someone who raises cattle uh Everybody eats and everybody should take a thoughtful approach to what they are consuming on a daily basis. So please enjoy this interview with Dr. Peter Ballerstead. Uh, oh, I also want to mention we've done a couple episodes on grass fed beef and uh, alternative multipaddock grazing, which are great and they fall under uh, this umbrella of, of the ruminant revolution. But Dr. Ballerstead is more interested in grass based, which is basically all ruminant nutrition. Every uh, cattle, even the cattle that gets sent to feedlot, eat primarily grasses uh not just corn as many false documentaries might have you realize so he believes in grass based not necessarily just grass fed or just grass finished although he certainly believes in in those um approaches as well so this isn't about how grass fed is better than corn fed has nothing to do with that it's more about how we need to consider our health and what we eat and consider the real information and the real research about ruminants and about animal agriculture so enjoy this conversation with dr peter ballerstedt Uh, Peter Ballerstedt, thank you so much for being on the show. Maybe for starters, if, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of what brought you into this love of ruminants.
1: Well, thank you, Tim, for the opportunity. Uh, my background academically, I received my doctorate from the University of Kentucky in the mid-80s in forage production utilization and a ruminant nutrition minor. Forage agriculture is kind of unique when you're in agronomy because you very much have to bridge the, the gap between the animal science world and the agronomy world. Um, and so that's how I got started. Uh, I took a bit of a sabbatic from agriculture for a number of years, worked in high tech for a while, and then had a personal health experience um, where I came to realized the value of animal products and the human diet and began to question some of the guidelines and conventional wisdom about human nutrition and then through some wonderful coincidences ended up back in forage agriculture and so now I kind of get to stand between I describe them as my tribes um, people who are in agriculture people who are consumers people who are maybe a little more uh, unconventional nutrition, uh, and all of them, uh, there's there's a gap between them, and I'm trying to bring those tribes together.
0: Very cool. W- w- would you mind uh, expanding a little bit on uh, what brought you back? I know you said a health issue, and you don't have to go into too many details if you don't like, but I'm just curious about what kind of revelation did you have that brought you back to this field and trying to fill this gap?
1: Sure. Um, about 10 years ago, I was an obese, balding, pre-diabetic, and today I'm just balding. Um, (laughs) There's no miracle here. Um, But as the, and the majority of that transformation in health was almost literally 180 degrees different than what I had been led to believe was the key to Uh, a healthy diet. Um, In other words, we're told that we're supposed to be eating majority of our calories from carbohydrate. We're supposed to restrict fat, especially saturated fats. Um, Therefore, we're supposed to avoid animal products, etc., etc. And as a result of reading a number of books, um, books like Gary Taubes' Good Calories, Bad Calories in particular, Uh, On an application basis, the books by Drs. Michael and Mary Dan Eads, um, those books led me to question that conventional wisdom and then led me into the research because, you know, it's trust but verify. I wanted to go read the studies and, and became increasingly convinced of the difference between animal nutrition as a science and then the world of human nutrition and Meanwhile, I had been out of agriculture uh, for some years by this point, and that got me back into this by going and interacting with farmers to buy the kinds of products that we wanted to find uh, at our local farmers markets, things like that. People recognized my name. That got me back out into the field, literally, as well as figuratively, and I re- remembered how much I loved sort of the extension side of going out and helping people solve problems and being outdoors and being around livestock. But then I had to realize that I brought certain attitudes with me that I hadn't fully re-examined. And so as I've gone along, I now try to um, engage people with what I believe I understand from the research in agriculture and, and try to Re-examine some of the, um, the 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 narratives that are at play, and and I really think that we have an opportunity to shift the conversation because right now so few people are actually involved in what I would call production agriculture, and and there's so many myths and so many um, misconceptions, and if we can one, educate the producers, and then the consumers and bring them together, Um, I, I think that we can make some enormous progress.
0: Sure. And you will talk about uh, what you call a ruminant revolution, and I think that you're kind of alluding to that right there. Uh, tell us more about what, what do you mean by we need a ruminant revolution and why?
1: Well, I'm, I'm making an obvious allusion to Professor Borlaug and, and what was done in the 60s and 70s that averted starvation for a billion people, which, well done, good and faithful servant. Um Remarkably, there are people typically in the affluent West who think that was a bad thing. <laughs> um, so, but I think that in order to shift us from survival to prosperity, we need to accomplish what the UN is predicting in terms of a, you know, two-thirds increase in animal product. Demand in the next 33 years, I believe, is how that works out. Um, so the the prediction of doubling um, food production and increased animal product uh, availability to feed a growing and growingly prosperous population worldwide. And my hypothesis is that we need to improve the productivity and efficiency of ruminant animal agriculture worldwide because our grassland resources are our largest and least well-utilized resource that remains. So if we look on a worldwide basis or if if we look at the entire surface of the earth, water as well as land, only about 4% of that total surface is cultivatable land. And we're familiar with the challenges with that. And we can make improvements, obviously. We continue to do that. But something approaching 14% of the world's surface is rangeland. So that gives a sense of the difference, obvious differences in productivity. Uh, But we also have about 10% that's forest. And, And if you put those together... We come up with about a quarter of the Earth's surface can be in some form of ruminant animal production system, varying by ecological zone, but this is a huge opportunity that we really have to uh, improve. And, and I would suggest that it's lagged behind the improvements that we've made in, in other agricultural systems. So I'd like us to sort of put the energy and the awareness behind improving ruminant animal agriculture that was put into increasing the yields of cereal crops. And, and if we look at then human nutrition worldwide... Right now, the human diet worldwide is already plant-based. The majority of our calories uh, come from plants and the majority of uh, protein worldwide comes from plant sources. And there are issues with trying to get protein for a human from plants. Um, And the, the, the key to, I would suggest, improving human flourishing is by increasing the availability of animal products in the human diet.
0: Yeah, and I know one of your tribes, or at least it seems uh, that I, I've kind of seen on uh, on Twitter, um, are are these folks that eat primarily meat? I, I don't know uh, if they call themselves kind of carnivores or, or what the right term is, but um, it would seem. And uh, some of them are doctors. Uh, some of them are uh, obviously you know high performance athletes. Um, are they really eating just meat, or, or what? what the, what's the diet look like?
1: Well, there's a number of there's sort of a, a continuum, if you will, in diet, but clearly there are a, a growing group of people who are finding either for athletic performance or for addressing uh, a wide range of chronic illnesses that they, their lives improve based on whatever their metrics are uh, when they eat uh, a wholly animal product diet, no plant matter to speak of or at all. Then there's another group of people that call themselves zero-carb, but they eat varying amounts of plant products. So that would differentiate them from people who call themselves carnivores. And then you can get into people who follow a ketogenic diet, which would be... Uh, would overlap those first two but might still have more carbohydrate in it than the zero carbs and then you have low carbohydrate people so and then you can move that on up I think a low carbohydrate diet and may be wrong on this but I think it's somewhere under 100 grams of carbohydrate a day Uh, ketogenic diet probably has to be well below 50 and and I could be off on those but you get the idea of of where they are as opposed to the standard recommendation which is somewhere around 300 grams of carbohydrate a day and then there's the actual as-practice diet which is well above 300 grams or um, so there's clearly this wide range but it is interesting to watch people uh, especially endurance athletes people who aren't necessarily engaged in explosive lifting or sprinting, but people who are engaged in marathon or ultra-marathon kind of activities who are reporting, and this is also being reported in the scientific literature now, um, improved um, endurance, improved training, improved recovery, less injury, those sorts of things that are happening when they're on some kind of a n- low restricted carbohydrate diet. And
0: I'm, I'm curious for you, uh, coming from such a science background uh, and a nutrition background, be it albeit, you know, forage animal nutrition, uh, I know you're really well researched in this topic. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: Oh, I'm certainly somewhere in the very low carbohydrate range. So um, I'm somewhere uh below 30 grams of carbohydrate a day i eat primarily animal products but i don't um i, I still uh, i still eat a bit of, of plant product from time to time
0: gotcha i, I want to get back to what you said about uh, i thought it was really interesting how you would love to see sort of rangeland um industry progression uh, maybe catch up with with uh with the advances that have been made in, in row crops. W- what would that look like from a practical standpoint? What, what would the steps be in order for that to happen?
1: There's, there's a need for leveraging what we already know. Uh, years ago, when I joined a faculty as a newly minted PhD, one of the full um, uh, professors nearing retirement was saying, You know, you really don't need to do much research. What you need to do is apply what we've learned over the last 50 years. And I think there was a lot of truth to that. Um, Improvements in grazing management, improvements in animal husbandry, improvements in new, um, uh, maybe new, I'd use the phrase new species. Of course, they're not new. We just haven't utilized them or newly developed varieties of existing species of, of forage or rangeland grasses. Um, when we go overseas, of course, we may well be seeing that this isn't primarily an issue of agronomy and animal science or animal husbandry, although, of course, those are needed, but we'll get into things like politics and rule of law and land ownership and you know, property rights and those sorts of things play a huge part in holding back the development of the resources in those regions. But when the United States, I think the figures are something like we have 10% of the beef cattle in the world, but we produce 20% of the beef. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so if we could just leverage that worldwide and then stand back and say, well, so, we could either increase the availability of beef, which I wouldn't think is a bad thing, or we could lower the impact worldwide of livestock agriculture if we could produce more from fewer numbers right right uh, so so I, I think you know there are issues of animal health um, but in and 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 reproductive efficiency in so many parts of this world um, the, but you still end up with a sociological issue we one of my colleagues came from um, Ethiopia and and then um, East Africa, Kenya, um, and what he was saying is, um, for some of these herdspeople, the number of cattle is hugely important because you know your wealth is is uh, demonstrated by the number of animals, and so uh, castrating calves makes no sense to those people they leave bulls intact and then of course come breeding season you've got all these bulls beating up on each other and wearing out the cows and not you know so so there's a there's a certain amount of this that's just you know take your animal science textbook and apply it and then there's the other part that says yeah but wait a minute you better have a bigger picture involved here of of the, the the belief systems the 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 societies that you're trying to reach into. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. until people understand the critical nature, the absolutely essential nature of ruminant animal agriculture, um, we don't put the effort or the resources or the focus into these things. And currently, so much of the debate is influenced, if not controlled by this idea of what constitutes a healthy diet and then on top of that, you can add, well, you know, but they're ruining the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of that is, is self-perpetuating narrative not tied to actual data. And I hope that what we can do is get more and more people educated about the reality of ruminants, their role in the development of modern human beings, their essential nature to societies worldwide today and then the absolute necessity of improving ruminant animal agriculture if we're going to meet the needs of you know, the population mid-century
0: if you could get the average consumer just to understand one message about ruminant agriculture what would it be
1: um yeah great question and I have varying points, you know, slides. I, I probably put too many words on some slides. But uh, I would say let's start with the idea that ruminant animal agriculture isn't competitive with human beings. That in fact, ruminant animal agriculture increases the human edible food supply. And it does that worldwide you know, modern Western agriculture as well as in other parts of the world.
0: And and that basically boils down to because we can raise ruminants on ground that's not fit
1: for crops humans can consume. Is that right? That's true, certainly, but also because um, a great deal of what's produced out of uh, the human food supply from plants ends up being a byproduct or a waste product. And we can feed those to ruminant animals. We can feed some of those to other animals, but I'm a ruminant nutrition guy, so I, I tend to get focused on that. Mm-hmm. So, so not only can we uh, utilize ground that we can't and shouldn't try to produce human-utilizable crops on, but byproducts of human food production can be fed. They'd otherwise be a waste product. Now they can be converted into high-quality animal protein and animal fat. In addition, we have this vast amount of cellulose that no vertebrate animal can utilize directly. But because of the symbiotic relationship between the rumen microorganisms and the host animal itself, we can convert that cellulose into, again, animal products, high quality animal protein and animal fat as well as vitamins and minerals and things that are more, either more available or aren't available in, from plants. Um, and so in, in this way, there's that integration even into crop production. So it's not an either or, um, it, it's a both and
0: that's probably a good segue and I wanna to talk to you about kind of grass-fed, uh grass finished, grass-based, uh or uh different terms that we use for uh for certain animal agriculture products and particularly beef. Um I would imagine what, what you mentioned earlier about the amount of beef the U.S. produces versus the amount of cattle we have uh, has something to do with, with our feedlot system and the amount of available grains. Uh, kind of weighing all those things into one answer. I know this is becoming a complicated question, but how, how do you look at uh, at grass-fed uh, agriculture or grass-based agriculture? And is is that the answer or an answer to, uh, to approaching this problem?
1: Oh, I, I think it's an answer. Um, I I use the phrase grass-based because all ruminant animal agriculture is grass-based. So somewhere on a life cycle basis worldwide, somewhere between a half and a hundred percent of the feed that goes into feeding all the ruminants in the world <laughs> is not utilizable by humans. And that might not be grass, technically speaking, but you, you the, the point is, that the vast majority of feed that goes, even in the United States, that goes into supporting the nation's cow herd, beef cow herd, is is not utilizable by humans. And b-
0: so, by – like the byproducts, you would say, like our corn stalks or uh, DDGs, which would be the byproduct of ethanol, and that sort of that sort of byproduct is that what you mean?
1: Absolutely. Um, um, you have the the. I think the figure was something like, and I. I something like for every hundred pounds of human utilizable food made from, and then there were a list of of crops that were looked at, and this is from a study cited in the cast report, we end up making something like thirty seven pounds of byproduct. so um, and and then, in addition to that is the stover or the straw, or the you know grazing wheat fields early in the production cycle, you know, those sorts. Out here in Oregon, we graze seed fields, um, so grass seed production, we will graze in the wintertime to keep the vegetation low for seed production. So there's that kind of integration that goes on. Um, so worldwide, something like two-thirds of the grain that's produced or consumed, sorry, um, is, is consumed by humans. And only about 5% goes to beef cattle, and only about 9% goes to dairy cows. So we, we have this image of what's happening and then there's the reality of what happens. Happens Clearly in the United States, we have the productivity we do because of the resources and the technology that, that's available to us. And one of my lines is the problem isn't the grain-fed cattle, it's the grain-fed people. The reason that two-thirds of adult Americans are either obese or overweight isn't because of the grain-fed cattle. The, the, the reason that we have over half of adult Americans being diabetic or pre-diabetic, and that's undoubtedly an underestimation because we're using poor metrics, uh, is not because of the grain-fed cattle. And if all of these researchers and clinicians that I've been you know introduced to and become familiar with over the last several years are right, then a solution to those unsustainable statistics is, are, are going to be diets higher in animal products than are currently recommended. And one of the issues that we have to face is affordability and availability um, because these burdens fall heavier on lower socioeconomic sectors of our society um, we need to be very, very circumspect, I would say, in terms of anything that's going to increase the cost of a food item that arguably is likely to produce a benefit in the health of the consumer. So back to your question about um, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished, there are two terms that mean different things, but if we just assume it's wholly grass fed its entire life, we're talking about a small part of the life being different. In other words, it's, it's the same production system that produces a calf that then either ends up in a conventional feedlot eating a diet higher in uh, concentrate, uh, or it goes into another management system where that animal stays on pasture and high-quality forage to try to produce a finished animal. Um, the the grass-fed is a small portion of the current um, beef production. It's um, one that fits a specific niche. It's a completely different product. Well, it's a different product. Um, I am concerned by some of the claims that I hear made for one versus the other in terms of health and in terms of environmental impact. But I don't think they're always well-founded. Um, but in large parts of this country uh, we have something called winter and so so how are you going to do this process Um, what what sorts of concessions do you have to make to the environment you're going to move animals to a different environment Uh, are you going to feed them in confinement uh, because in the winter time or what exactly does that look like but uh, I'm I'm a supporter of the industry as opposed to sectors of the industry, and I, I, I hope that we can get past the us versus them within the the producer community because I think we have arrayed against us a narrative that really doesn't care how you manage your animals. They, they're against animal agriculture.
0: I have heard claims that, uh, you know, obviously you are what you eat, but also that you are what you eat eats. Uh, have you dug into that at all? Kind of implying that if, you know, if you're trying to avoid grains, but you're eating, you know, grain fed cattle, that there's some sort of, uh, you, you know, it, it, the grains kind of come through in the meat somehow. Is there any truth well. to that?
1: Well, I my answer, with all due respect to the author who gave us that, um, or at least who repeats it so frequently. You you are not what you eat. You are what your body does with what you eat. In other words, there are good studies showing the more saturated fat you eat, the less there is in your blood. Okay, um, there you know, uh, or conversely, if we look at cattle that are eating a high fiber, low fat and low poor quality protein diet what they become is certainly not that right beef is none of those things um and so if you are what you eat uh, we are clearly animal we are clearly muscle for example so maybe we should be eating muscle um would be a counter argument but beyond that i i think that we've been told for so long what we ought to be eating that the reality is we like eating animal products. We like eating red meat. And so if somebody can tell us some way to do that and feel less guilty about it, then then we go there. And uh, I'm not convinced that that isn't part of what people are looking for when they choose one product over another. Um, in, in terms of the... There, there are specific quantifiable differences between grass-fed and grain-finished beef. That's not debatable. What I would push back against is what is the what are the biological significances of those differences? And once we start going down that road, then we start finding all kinds of assumptions and all kinds of um, uh, we, we bring in hypotheses, for example, about what causes heart disease. And so if you go back to some of the earliest uh, papers talking about grass finished versus grain fed, and again, I, I enjoy both products, but just from this sort of perspective, you find people saying, well, that, that um, what we're, we're going to look at the Greenland natives who have very little heart disease despite eating a diet high in fat, it must be the fish oil. And so we get the whole idea of it, you know, that we we need that in large doses to avoid heart disease. My pushback is beef, regardless of how it's finished, is not a rich source of either omega-6 or omega-3. If, if you want omega-3, eat oily fish. Um, and, and conversely, if you're paying a lot more for a grass-fed piece of beef, but you're eating a handful of walnuts, or if you're still putting soybean oil-based salad dressing on the salad next to that piece of meat, you've just and and your reason for buying the grass-fed beef in the first place was the omega six to omega three ratio, right? Lower omega six, you've just Blown that up by eating a handful of walnuts or by having a tablespoon of salad dressing, because quantity matters it's it's not the ratio um, and that still leaves us questioning what is you know does animal fat produce heart disease so uh, back to your I, I think back to your question I, I think that we can confidently say that there are differences. What we can't confidently assert, at least to my understanding of the data, is the health implications. And and certainly when you take on board some of the information looking at things like the, the effect of chronically elevated insulin on heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's and some of these other chronic illnesses that have been used as reasons for making other dietary choices.
0: Well, Dr. Peter Ballerstedt, thank you so much for taking time. This has been really interesting to explore this intersection of, of uh, human nutrition, uh, animal nutrition, and, and the future of agriculture. If people want to follow up with you and kind of learn more about your research and the work you're doing in this space, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
1: They can find me on Twitter at Grass Based, also Instagram, same name. You can find me on Facebook. I have a grass-based health page. And you can email me directly at peter.ballersted@gmail.com. at um, I'm looking for people who are knowledgeable about ruminant animal agriculture from a production um, viewpoint. I'm, I'm looking for expertise in those areas so that we can come together with people that are also knowledgeable on this health nutrition space. I refer to this group as the Ruminati um, because I I think ruminants rule and trying to find ways to make this information accessible to the vast majority of Americans who don't know about production agriculture or don't know the health Nutrition information. So I'm looking for feedback. I'm looking for people interested in joining me in this. And so I welcome.
0: that got your brain thinking about what you're consuming on a daily basis and the power of this ruminant revolution, uh, I would encourage you to follow Dr. Ballersted on Twitter or on social media, wherever you're at, because he does post some really interesting slides about research he's either consumed or done himself and uh, always has something interesting to say, you know, a new perspective. He actually shared with me after we stopped rolling there that uh, we have more people in the United States incarcerated uh, than we do primary operators of farms. Uh, just interesting tidbit for you there. And, and on top of that, I think something like 70% of those primary operators don't use that as their primary source of income. So the number pretty staggering. Anyway, um, follow Dr. Ballersted. I'd also love your feedback on this podcast. I haven't read an iTunes review in a while. Honestly, I did that iOS update and it's got me all messed up. The, the new uh, podcast feature, in my opinion, is horrible, and it's hard for me to even find my own show. So, I appreciate those that are still taking the time to rate and review this podcast. I will share some more uh, of those ratings and reviews in the future if I can figure this new app out. Uh, But you can always reach me on Twitter, at Tim Hammerich. Thanks. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com that's future of today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.